Okay, well, if I, uh, I think I've met everybody here, but um, my name, yeah, I think I definitely have. Uh, my name is Eric Welsh. Um, I, I do get to uh, the honor of, of, of preaching from time to time, and it, and it is an honor to, to be able to, to do this today. Um, I, um, I pray that the, that, that the labors of, of study will, will bless you and, and, um, and uh, that God would use it to, um, to cut or to bind or whatever his purpose is um, for his word today. So let's let's pray before we we get into it. Let's go to the Lord, uh, Father in heaven. Uh, we pray to you, Father, that today, uh, as your people, God, we we come before you and and we petition your your your, your throne of grace, Lord, for for mercy. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate the the text for us today, God. I, I pray that that um, that that the the words of this study, Lord, and that and that the words of your Scripture would would uh, set out to to accomplish all that you would have it do in your people. Um, be with us, Lord. Have grace. Um, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the message today is is over a story that is uh, that's that should be very familiar to to most people. Um, it's the story of of David and, and Bathsheba. And uh, originally, when I had uh, when I had chosen this uh, this passage of scripture to to study, um, I originally wanted to call it the tale of two kings, and I wanted to show the differences between uh, David and Saul's kingship. And, uh, the, you know, to be honest with you, the Lord just kind of led me in a, in a completely different direction. Um, and uh, uh, I decided to title the, the sermon, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because it's, it's just so much theologically here. Um, and and this, this, was, uh, this was more prevalent. So our, our, our chapter that we're going to be looking at is going to be Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And before we, we dive into this, I'm going to summarize, um, as part of the introduction, I'm going to summarize what happens in chapter 11. Most of you probably already know this story, um, but uh, uh, I, it bears uh, repeating for, for anybody who might not, uh, might not know. So, so at a time when David would have been at war um, uh, normally, he was in Jerusalem at this time. And he goes up to his roof and sees a beautiful woman that is bathing on a roof that is uh, that is next to, to where he lives. And um, her name was Bathsheba. And she was married to a man named Uriah the Hittite, who just so happened to be uh, a soldier in David's army. Um, David... Uh, use his servants to go out and find information out about her. He finds out that this is the wife of Uriah and he uh, actually sends his servants out to bring her to him um, where he commits adultery with her. Um, Bathsheba, as a result of this adultery, becomes pregnant with David's child and David goes into where he starts to try to hide his sin. He, he, he calls for Uriah to come back to Jerusalem and David tries to get Uriah to, to go and to be with Bathsheba so that he can hide his sin, so that he could say, well, you know, it's not going to be weird to anybody. This is going to be David's child, or this is going to be Uriah's child and, and not David's. But Uriah, being a faithful soldier and a faithful brother in arms, could not go to his wife when David calls him home. He didn't want to go to his wife while his brothers were out on the battlefield sleeping in tents and, and eating, you know, rationed um, um, goods, he, he couldn't go to, to then be with his wife and, and, and feast. Uh, David was going to feed him. And I mean, he was trying all kinds of different ways to get him to go back home. Um, 
and he, he wouldn't go. He actually winds up sleeping at David's door, um, which really kind of throws a, a wrench in the gears of, of David's plan. But um, uh, David even tries to get him drunk. He even tries to get him drunk and, and, and get him back over to his wife so that he can hide this sin and still faithful where Uriah would not go home. Um, so David, in order to hide his sin, uh, decides that he's going to murder Uriah. Um, he comes with the plan that he's going to send Uriah to the front lines of, of a fierce battle to ensure that he would die. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a treacherous, a treacherous story. Um, he decides to try to hide his, his, uh, his, uh, treachery with, with murder. Um, once Uriah is killed on the battlefield, um, news gets back to Bathsheba, his wife, that her husband has died and she mourns for him. She mourns for her husband and she does so for seven days, which was a cu- was customary at this time. And uh, as soon as the seventh day of mourning uh, comes to an end, David calls for Bathsheba into his home. She becomes his wife and uh, she bears him a son months later, months later. Now, uh, here in chapter 12, of Second Samuel, that's what brings us here to to our our, our verses. Um, it says at the in the very last sentence of chapter eleven, the thing that David had done uh, was evil in the sight of the Lord. You hear that um, in both uh, Saul's story um, and in David's. We'll get to that here in a little while. But uh, but it was indeed evil, uh, treacherous, uh, particularly for the man who was after God's own heart, um, which was professed even before this. But. Um, we're going to go ahead and get into to chapter 12 here. This is uh, months later. Uh, this So from the end of chapter 11 to the beginning of chapter 12, um, there is about a, a six-month, what scholars believe to be a six-month period of time that's gone by. Um, she has Bathsheba has moved into the house with David, and she is only days away from giving birth, some scholars believe, or this is shortly after she's given birth. Uh, it falls somewhere in that time frame. But the Lord God has sent Nathan, his prophet, to confront David's sin. That's what we're picking up here in chapter 12. Um, go ahead and read with me. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flock and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Stop right there. So this right here, uh, Nathan is, is, is comes with a proverb or comes with a parable. He, he, he's, he's going to start to expose the sin of David by giving him a parable. And, And he creates this, 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 uh, this story where there is a rich man and a poor man, the rich man representing David and the poor man representing Uriah and the 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 ewe lamb representing Bathsheba. Now he he he's not he's not uh, likening Bathsheba to a lamb or to a livestock or to property or anything like that that you may have heard uh, preached in this type of deal in the past. Is not saying that this uh, the ewe lamb represents uh, uh, something that is cherished, something that is extremely dear to the poor man. Let's continue to read. It says, now a traveler came to the rich man. This is verse four. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the uh, wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man who has everything does not want to give up his own 
lamb to prepare for the person that is coming to stay with him. So he actually sees the poor man's lamb, steals the poor man's lamb, slaughters it and prepares it for the man that's coming to visit him. And David has a a harsh reaction to this. In verse five, it says that David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. Now, David, this is a, this is a very um, um, emotional response to, to this injustice that just took place. And there's reason for that, because in the law of God, it states that if someone was to steal livestock from somebody else and to slaughter it, that they would actually have to go back and pay four times what the animal is worth. It wasn't something that resulted in the death penalty. But David here is saying that uh, that this man, as the Lord lives, almost in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense of a vow, this man deserves to die. And then in verse 6, David, knowing the law, says that he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan drops the bomb on him in the very next verse. It says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the rich man, David. You have come in and you have coveted what was your neighbor's. You, you, you didn't, you, you didn't um, um, uh, honor what the Lord had given you. The Lord had given him so many blessings. He literally, he was the richest man on the planet at the time. And he decided to covet what was his neighbor's and he took it. Now, David thought that the man in this parable was worthy of death for simply taking a lamb. He just condemned himself two times or three times over if you look at it because in the parable the man did not go onto his neighbor's property and 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 slay the the man who owned the lamb and he didn't commit adultery with the woman who who was his wife before he took the lamb david's scenario was 10 times worse than what was even stated to him in the the uh, the parable and yet david said that the man in the parable should die well what does that mean for david the law actually prescribes anybody who commits adultery is worthy of the death penalty. Anybody who murders somebody is worthy of the death penalty. There's no doubt that David, in this moment where he is told, you are the man, David, you are the rich man, he knew exactly what that meant for him. He spoke out of turn. He was not considering his own sin in judging, and he's condemned. He's condemned before the Lord. He is shut down before this thing even begins. And, and believe me, it's about to begin. Let's go back to uh, verse 7 here. <clears throat> uh, Nathan continues to speak after he says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. David's time to speak is done. Uh, it's lip sealed. The Lord is about to speak now. Um, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. The only reason why you are king and the only reason why you own everything that you own is because the Lord has appointed it to you, David. Verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little or not enough, I would have added to you many more things like these. We can go back through the Psalms, brothers and sisters. We can go back through the Psalms and we can look at all of the, of the things that David says about all about Lord's goodness to him and the Lord's kindness to him. And, and all the times that the Lord has, has delivered him from his enemies. That's what he's talking about up here in verse seven. You, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. He ran from Saul for, for years, right? Um, God had taken care of David. God had appointed David as king after Saul had failed, 
right? Everything that David has was because of the Lord, and the Lord is reminding David where your only reason why you're uh, at where you're at is because of me. Uh, verse 9, so then why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? That's breaking the Lord's commandment. That's what that means. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And all that means is that, um, is that uh, uh, he had sent um, Uriah to be killed by the Ammonites. That's who Jerusalem, that's who the Israelites were at war with um, at the time. Now, I want us to stop there and I, I want us to consider um, uh, a couple things before the Lord gets into, into judgment um, and into um, proclaiming his judgment over, over David. Um, David, like I said before, was a man that was after God's own heart. Um, David was the one who coined the term or coined the, or, uh, penned the Psalm that said that he meditated on the law of the Lord day and night, right? And that he loved the law of the Lord, but yet we have him in this scenario in which he has just committed murder or he committed adultery and he has committed murder and all of the line that goes with it to cover up that sin. Something's not gelling here, right? Like, like. This isn't consistent with the words that David speaks in his Psalms, but yet, but yet here we are, here we are. David has sinned and David has sinned greatly. His mouth is sealed right now. And the Lord is about to judge his sin. And the Lord does deal harshly with sin. We know this. We, we've, we've seen this throughout um, 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 many of the things that have been preached, um, even from this pulpit. But I'd like to look at, at verse 11. It says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Um, it's too much to go into today, but I would urge you guys, maybe for your own study, to read out the rest of Second Samuel. And you'll see uh, exactly what uh, is talking about. David had four children that all went to the grave before he died. Uh, David had a daughter who was, uh, was raped. Um, and this all happened within the household of David. Everything that God is telling David here is actually what happened. And that is the judgment that, uh, uh, for the sin that David had committed. Verse 12, indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And then this is, this is kind of where it makes a little bit of a turn here. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Make no mistake. This is all David could muster. This is, there was not much left for David to say other than I have sinned against the Lord. This is almost like the rock bottom moment in this passage. Um, there's nothing else left to do but just to confess. Notice he didn't try to make any excuses. If you go back into 1 Samuel where Saul is being addressed by Samuel, who is the prophet, he, oh, there's all kinds of excuses. No, I did what the Lord said to do. I, I the, the Lord had told him to go in and to wipe out the Amalekites completely to take Agag the king and to kill him and to kill every man, woman, and child and every piece of livestock. He wanted the Amalekites wiped off the face of the earth and Saul didn't do that. And when he comes back and Samuel confronts his sin, much like Nathan is confronting the sin of David now, he goes and says, uh, why did you despise the word of the Lord? You have done what is evil in the Lord's sight and, and Saul gives excuses. Well, no, no, we, we kept the best lambs and the best cattle and the best everything to make sacrifices to the Lord, our God. 
keep in mind that he did all of this after he built a monument to himself as they're coming back to Jerusalem. He committed idolatry. He despised the word of the Lord, right? Um, but the difference between David and, and, and Saul was that, that David confessed to sin. Saul didn't. As we look a little bit further, Nathan had said to David here a little bit further in verse 13, but the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Well, that's against the law. If you think about it, he committed adultery. He murdered. That's actually against the law of God to, 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 to let him live is to transgress the law of God, at least on its face. It seems that way, right? He committed adultery. He committed murder. Whoever does that should die. We're going to get back to that. That's, that's going to be the, the, the point of all of this. But in verse 14, it says, However, because by this deed you have given occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. In verse 14, we get the very beginning phase of the judgment of God on David, where he is going to take the son that is born to him from the relationship that he had with Bathsheba. Um, and that happens. That happens actually on, on the seventh day. On the seventh day of, after the baby's born, um, it's customary in Jewish times that on the eighth day is whenever you would circumcise a child and give them their name. They would remain nameless until the eighth day. Um, this child was taken on the seventh. The reason why the child in, in the in the chapter after or in the in the passage afterwards and like i said it's too much to get into there's so much but um uh there was a reason why the child remains nameless even in because the child never received a name it was it was taken by god and and i realize that that can sometimes seem harsh particularly to to non-believers or particularly people that don't um understand um how god never changes sometimes people look at the old testament and they see a god that is prepared to take a child but it's because they don't understand the nature of God's holiness, right? Um, this is what we know. This is what we know. And, and, and I want you guys to read this in your own time because, like I said, it's too much to get into. I don't want to keep you all here for the next three hours. But um, when, when we get into this um, and you start to read it, understand when you read that the Lord is taking this love child of, of David and Bathsheba, that the Lord is good and that his righteousness, he, he is his righteous in his judgments, that the judge of the, or, the, of, the, of the earth does right. He does right. And if he chooses to take a child or a man or a woman, there's no one innocent that he is still worthy of our praise and of our adoration, even when we don't understand why he makes the judgments the way that he does. Okay. So without being able to go in and break it all down and really explain it, I just want to leave you with that as you go into your own study at home. I want to get back here to what he says in uh, in in uh, thirteen, when he tells him that that the Lord has taken away his sin and he shall not die, well, how could the Lord and why would the Lord forgive him his sin? Why would he forgive him his sin? That that doesn't make any sense on its face. But if anybody in here has ever read Psalm fifty one, we get our answer to that in that psalm, and and we are going to take a little bit of a look at that. But I want everybody to know that in between. Verse 15 and 16, before the Lord strikes the child with sickness, that that is this little period right here in between these two verses is when David pens Psalm 51. It comes right here in between these two verses. And I, I want us to flip there. Let's flip to Psalm 51. 
And we're just going to be here for a split second, but I want you to kind of keep your finger there because we are going to flip back to it at the end of this, at the end of this deal. But the answer is right here in, in Psalm 51. And it's, and it's a really easy thing to overlook. Um, if you're just kind of, just kind of reading it uh, in a hurry. So I, I just, I really, really want to look at this first verse and uh, it's so be- so beautiful the way God's providence works, by the way. So uh, before we got to this point, um, uh, um, uh, Brother Zachary read um, Psalm 36, and it was all about the loving kindness of the Lord. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I, so we're hopefully if we were all listening to, to that to that passage of Scripture being read, this is this is going to flow beautifully. And that was not planned, by the way. So, OK, Psalm 51, uh, verse one, be gracious to me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the great, the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. That word, loving kindness, it's easy to overlook. Some of your translations may say unfailing love or steadfast love, um, but the the Hebrew word that's used there is, is one, and you've probably heard it explained before in a sermon. But it is the Hebrew word hesed, and hesed is a loving kindness it is a loving kindness it is an unfailing love but it's an unfailing love in that it is tied to the covenantal love of god it cannot be separated from the covenant that god has made with someone so when you see that word it's used 30 times like this in the old testament specifically when you see the word in this context the word has said and it can mean other variations but in this context specifically it means covenantal love unfailing love, God's faithful love. When we sing, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy chesed. It's the same, it comes from the same word. It's his covenantal love. What covenant? What covenant? Well, what covenant did he make with David? We need to look at that in order to understand what he's talking about here. So let's flip back over to Second Samuel and we're gonna go to chapter seven. Chapter 7. And we're going to be going verses 8 through 22. And I'm, I'll just, uh, so just follow along with me uh, while we read it. <clears throat> Second Samuel 7, uh, verse 8. Now, therefore, oh, well, uh, th- okay, so this is just, Quick little uh, addition here, something that's useful to know. This is the same prophet, Nathan, that's saying this to Daniel. This is the same prophet, Nathan. This is before all of the Bathsheba stuff even ever took place. The same exact prophet that God used to call out the sin of David that we read in uh, uh, chapter 11 is the same prophet being used that God is announcing the covenant that he's making with David. It's important to know that. Verse eight, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will, give you the, I will give you rest from all of your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. 
When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now on its face, that, that's Solomon. He's talking about Solomon, but he's also talking about every other descendant after Solomon. Solomon doesn't live forever, right? And we're going to find out <clears throat> here in uh, verse 13 that he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Like I said, Solomon doesn't live forever. We'll go to verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. This is from David on. This is all of the descendants that would come from David, starting with David. Okay. If we look at that, let's, let's look at that and let's go back. I mean, we don't have to actually have to go back, but I just want to remember what I, what I said earlier from when we were reading about David's sin being confronted, that I will, that when he commits iniquity, I will correct them with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. He's the Lord. God says that, that, uh, that there's going to be evil that comes up, uh, comes in, uh, into his own house, right? The Lord is punishing David for his sin. But in verse 15, but my chesed, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when we interpret that in light of the New Testament, knowing who Jesus Christ is, we know that Jesus Christ is the descendant of David, right? Every descendant prior to Christ uh, their iniquity was forgiven them. The loving kindness of God never departed from the family of David, from, from, from the line of David, never departed from him. And then we get Christ who sits on David's throne forever, right? So how does David respond to this? The Lord God says that he's going to do all of these things. This is not, his covenant with David is not a conditional one. It is not, it's not, a, it's not a, a covenant that he makes with David in that if you do this, 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 and this, my loving kindness will never depart from your house. It actually says that when you do this, this, and this, my loving kindness, my hesed will not depart from you. This is a promise being made to David from God. This is a one-sided covenant that David is just a participant in, right? He just is king that God appointed him to be. You see how this works? Now, I want to look in, and see how David actually winds up responding to this. Let's go to verse, uh, let's move down to verse 25. <clears throat> David says some beautiful things in this prayer. But like I said, for the sake of time, it's, uh, I'm having to get to the, to, the, to the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, 25 says, now, therefore, O Lord God, this is David speaking. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as thou hast spoken, that thy name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made a revelation to thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words are truth. And thou hast promised this good thing to thy servant. Now, therefore, may it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue before forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken, and with thy blessing may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. I'm going to make this real simple. What that is saying 
is that David believed God. He believed God. When God said, I'm going to do this for you and I will establish your throne forever, David believed God. In the exact same way that Abraham believed God, when he said, I am going to make a nation out of you, there is, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand and as numerous as the stars that are in the heavens. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to provide, not only am I going to do that, I'm going to provide you a son. And they were all in their old age. This That's a miracle all in itself, isn't it? That he's going to provide them a son. And not only that, but when that son is born, when Isaac is born and he marches him up the hill to sacrifice Isaac, they, they, he even believed that God would provide the sacrifice. And it was credited to him as what? Paul tells us this in Romans. It was credited to him as righteousness. Let's go back to the original question. How could David, how could God, and why would God forgive David? Because David believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's look at this, how how this plays out. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This was before, this was before the whole entire journey and everything else, right? The promise was made. What did, what did Abraham do? He got impatient and he had a child that with a concubine that was not his wife. That's a sin before almighty God, but God had made a covenant with Abraham. And he still provided the child of promise, who was Isaac. Here we have that the Lord is going to establish David's throne forever. And that's going to happen regardless of the sin that David committed. And the reason why is because Christ died for the sins of Abraham. Christ died for the sins of David. Now, in dispensational circles, you, you, you can go in and look and say, well, Christ hadn't died yet. So their sins hadn't been atoned for. No, 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 no. No, that's not how that works. He believed the reason why David is being forgiven his transgressions is because David believed by grace through faith in Christ alone. He believed God when he said that his son was going to take the throne forever. He believed in Christ that was to come. We believe in the Christ that has come. It all meets at this perfect position in the middle of eternity where Christ dies for the sins of his people. David's sins were forgiven and could be forgiven because Christ was going to pay for his sins. That's the, that's the, the, the covenant of grace. That's the covenant of grace. David receives, now, if, if, if David had only received the mercy of God and that he didn't lose his life based on what the law had said, that would have been more than David deserved. We can all look at this and we can say the sins of David were treacherous. They were horrible. But the reason why David was forgiven is the same reason why you and I in this room, to the praise of God's glorious grace, are forgiven this very day. We were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, all of us may not have committed adultery and murder, you know, um, um, but, uh, but we still, but by, by, the, by the demands of the law, we all deserve to die physically and spiritually. I mean, if you really think about it, but yet God has had mercy in the same way that he had mercy on David. That changes the perspective, doesn't it? When you think about the covenant that God made with David and his loving 
kindness and his choosing to not count his sin against him, to judge his sin. Oh yes, because the Lord does judge sin. He must judge sin because he's just. And he does, he does in David's life. And it's, it's a hard life for David after this. There's no question about it. But at the end of David's life, he gives a song that is so beautiful because he understood the covenant that the Lord had made with him prior to all of his mistakes. Now, with that, understanding what has happened in the life of David, I want to go back and I want to read Psalm 51. And we're going to read every verse. And there's nothing more beautiful. Psalm 51. Um, before before we, we, we get into this... Um, just something really, really fast. And I, and I've, I've alluded to it before. And, and, uh, I, I just, I want to, I'm just a little personal for a second. So when the Lord saved me, um, years ago, he saved me at a drug and alcohol rehab. And I believe I, I can't pinpoint exactly when it was that the Lord saved me, but I read this Psalm. This is the Psalm that I read. Um, when I believe that the Lord saved me. Um, there is something about the, the, the state of the person who is keenly aware of his sin and, it, and who has at least some measure of understanding. Now, David has much more understanding than I had when I felt this way, like when my, when my heart was brought to this place of repentance, of repentance before a holy God. Um, but you can see that here. I want everybody to listen to these words and maybe you've read it before, but in light of everything that we've talked about up until this point, I really, really want you to hear the words of David. Okay. Okay. Psalm 51 verse one. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you are justified when you speak and are blameless when you judge. Behold, that I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Hold on just a second. For those who are saved in this room, the moment that God saved you, I would actually argue that that might've been the first moment that you've ever been able to hear joy and gladness, real joy and gladness with a sense of forgiveness, right? Sorry, I, that, uh, we'll keep going. Let the bones which you have broken, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and they will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And when my tongue, then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. 
You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And by thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And then the young bulls will be offered on thine altar. That's the heart of someone who understands the holiness of God. That is someone who understands the sinfulness of his sin. This is somebody who was not an unbeliever that came into being a believer. This is somebody who knew the goodness of God. This is somebody who had received the forgiveness of God even before this. But when he goes to the Lord, he confesses his sin. And what does 1 John 1, 9 say? That we confess our sins when we confess our sins to the Lord, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us. What kind of faithful? Covenantally faithful. It's not, Lord, I have done this sin. I've committed this sin so many times. And I've talked to my brothers here and it's so crazy. You know, you, you, it's why it's important that us Christians get together and we talk about these things of the Lord because we can get into this mindset of thinking, man, I, I struggle with this sin in my life and I commit this same sin over and over and over again. And I always go into my prayer closet or to wherever it is you pray. And I get on my knees and I ask Lord for forgiveness over and over and over again. And he's just going to get sick of me. He's going to get sick of the fact that I do this or I do that because I've confessed it so many times and he keeps on forgiving me. Yes. He does keep on forgiving you and he will keep on forgiving you. If he forgave David of, a, of adultery and murder, what makes you think that he can't forgive you of your thoughts that just pop into your head from time to time about various things? What if you get angry? You don't think God can forgive you for your anger? It's because of his loving kindness that he forgives you, not because of your willingness to obey him, not because of, of, of anything that you do, but because of the covenant that he made with his son before all of this even began. And he is faithful. He's faithful to carry that through and he will forgive you for your sin. Therefore, therefore, since his kindness is so great, since his forgiveness is so plentiful since his mercies are literally new every single day. Repent, repent. And I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to all of you, repent in dust and ashes if you must, but repent, turn away because our Lord is faithful and just to forgive us covenantally. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, great is your faithfulness. And it is by your hand, Lord, that you have provided all that we need to live a righteous life, to be righteous in your sight, O oh Lord. You are worthy of our worship and you are worthy of our praise. Who is man that you would be mindful of him? Who are we, God, that you would send your son to die for us? God, please renew our hearts, cut us, bind us up, break us, whatever it is that, that you must do, Lord, sanctify us, that we would be more like Christ, God, that we would see your forgiveness, not as just something that you just do arbitrarily, God, but that our sin has actually been paid for. 
cause us to see these things, Lord, and, 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 and by your spirit, cause us to lead uh, an even more righteous life than, than, than what we have, God. But understanding that our righteousness only comes from you and the covenant that you have made and the sacrifice that you have provided on our behalf, God. Thank you. We thank you, Lord, as your people, and we worship you, Lord. Uh, accept it. Accept it, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.